Hello, everyone, and welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists, authors, and activists during this COVID pandemic. I'm your co-host, Linda Liu, Zoomcasting here from Dorchester, Massachusetts. And today's conversation is on the subject of confronting anti-Asian racism and building community resistance. The guests we have lined up today all have deep community organizing experience, and I'm very excited to learn more about their perspectives on this topic. Joining us from Houston, Texas today is our guest co-host, Alice Liu. Alice, thanks for being here with us today. Yeah, so happy to be here. Thank you, Linda. I'm delighted she's co-hosting with me today to delve deep on this topic. Um, Alice is one of the co-directors of West Street Recovery, a horizontally organized grassroots group using rebuild and recovery efforts after disaster to build community power. Alice is a climate justice organizer who believes liberation of people of color in the US and around the world, as well as in building an economic system outside of capitalism are fundamental to a just and livable future. Before West Street, Alice worked at the Gulf Coast Area Labor Federation, providing communication support for labor unions in the Houston area. Our other esteemed guests today are Michael Liu. Hello, Michael. Thanks for joining us today. Hello, everyone. Glad to be here. And Kent Wong. Hi, Kent. Thanks for being part of our conversation. Great to be with everybody tonight. Thank you. All right, so uh, Michael Liu is a native of Boston, Chinatown. After graduating from college, he has been active on social justice and community issues, especially concerning Boston, Chinatown. He was a founding member of several community justice, social justice groups, including the Chinese Progressive Association, Boston, the API movement, and the Boston Rainbow Coalition. In the 1990s, he was executive director of the Asian American Resource Workshop. He is currently active with the Activist Training Institute, working with young organizers and occasionally volunteers at AARW and CPA. He received his PhD in public policy at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, which is actually where I teach, and worked as a researcher at the Institute for Asian American Studies at UMass Boston until his retirement. He co-authored an interpretive history of Asian American organizing called The Snake Dance of Asian American Activism, and recently authored a history of Boston Chinatown, Forever Struggle. And Wong is the director of the UCLA Labor Center where he teaches labor studies and ethnic studies. Kent is the founding president of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance, AFL-CIO, the first national organization of Asian American union members and workers. He's a vice president of the California Federation of Teachers representing 120,000 teachers and educational workers. Kent also served as the founding president of the United Association for Labor Education, the national organization representing university-based labor centers and union educators. Before joining the UCLA Labor Center, Kent worked as a staff attorney for the Service Employees International Union in Los Angeles. He also served as the first staff attorney for Asian Americans Advancing Justice in Los Angeles, the largest Asian American civil rights organization in the country. 
Kent has published more than a dozen books on the labor movement, immigrant rights, popular education, and the Asian American community. He is married to Jai Lee Wong, a community organizer, and they have two sons, Ryan and Robin. All right. So uh, before we begin, I'd just like to remind everyone that though our uh, shelter and solidarity conversations typically start with a dialogue with our invited guest speakers. As always, we aim to inspire a community conversation. So we hope that you can keep a list of your own questions and comments, which you can either enter into the Zoom chat box Facebook Live show page or direct message me or one of my co-producers as we and we will work with you to um, get you into the conversation as soon as we can. Around 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we're hoping to transition to Q&A with our audience. And as usual, a reminder to keep your mics muted unless you're speaking. All right. So without further ado, I'm just going to dive right into our subject. In the past year, reports of harassment and physical assaults of people of Asian descent have been surging in the US. The group Stop AAPI Hate, a national coalition formed this past year to address anti-Asian discrimination during the pandemic, has received over 6,600 such reports over this past year, coming from all 50 states. Another study of official preliminary police data by Cal State University at San Bernardino showed that anti-Asian hate crime in America's 16 largest cities increased 149% in 2020. The city of New York, for instance, logged over 200 anti-Asian hate crimes and bias incidents in 2020, up from only 30 the previous year. Incidents reported nationwide have ranged from shunning verbal slurs, attacks on homes and businesses and in public places, as well as physical and in some cases, lethal violence. Many Asians are fearful for their safety, even as some people continue to doubt that these incidents even add up to a wave of anti-Asian racism. What's your assessment of the situation and how do you think we can make sense of this yes. rise in reported incidents in the Hi. past year? Um, so, uh, Michael? Well, um, you know, obviously it's a very horrific uh, situation. Um, and I think, you know, for a, lot, for a long time, like it's, you know, I think flown under the radar. I think people don't take much notice of Asian Americans or, or such situation Asian Americans face. But I think like the um, hate toward Asians actually has many different routes. I think often um, Asian Americans are scapegoats during times of anxiety and stress. You go back to the, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act that was preceded by the, uh, the panic of 1873. So, you know, there was economic depression. Uh, you think about the internment and World War II. Uh, you think about, uh, you know, the killing of Vincent Chin that was, uh, a lot during a time of deindustrialization de of the United States. So I think, uh, um, you know, so I think our national anxiety uh, preys upon uh, the Asian American community as a, as a natural target. Um, and I also think that, but I think that there's a particular um, character to 
to hate against Asians, which is a little bit different in that it's uh, related to who we as a country have become. Uh, if you think about um, how the images of Asians have evolved, um, you know, it, it all came from, um, you know, just as the images of African-Americans uh, re related to, uh, to justify uh, slavery, the images of Asians is related to justifying imperialism uh, that, you know, the, you think of the uh, opium war, you know, to justify the, the trade the United States participated in, uh, to justify, uh, you know, the uh, Spanish-American war with, that colonized uh, uh, the Philippines, you know, the, the Korean war, the Vietnam war. So to justify the, um, you know, intrusion, exploitation, and subjugation of all these people, I think that these images of Asian Americans is all rooted in that. So I think it's very deep. And I think that it comes to surface during these periods of anxiety. Okay, thank you, Michael, uh, for that. Um, Kent? I uh, completely agree with everything that Michael raised. Uh, I do think that historically, uh, anti-Asian violence and anti-Asian hate uh, have uh, always been with us. And it has historically been underreported and, uh, and uh, invisible. And so I do think that uh, the current wave of um, anti-Asian uh, hate and violence uh, is at a time when there is a heightened consciousness with regard to racial injustice, uh, specifically uh, based on the um, movement for black lives. I think there has been a, a national mobilization and international mobilization that has uh, called out white supremacy and the uh, systemic racism that is so deeply ingrained in uh, US society. And so I do think that um, uh, the wave of anti-Asian violence has to be understood in the broader context of the attacks on all communities of color, uh, the uh, mass incarceration impacting um, you know, black and brown sisters and brothers, the uh, situation of uh, fierce anti-immigrant hysteria, the caging of children at the border, the Muslim ban. I think all of these are very much related to a, um, a white supremacist culture within our society that in many ways has been given a uh, a justification and support under the uh, four years of the prior administration. So I do think that um, uh, you know th these have all contributed to um, uh, heightened uh, hostility against uh, Asian Pacific Americans, but also uh, greater consciousness not only within the um, Asian Pacific American community but the broader community at large. Okay, great. Um, so actually, we have um, a sub question. Alex, yeah. would you like to ask that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Ken, I think you bring up a great point here that we can't, uh, we can't have a limited perspective when we're looking at both the problem and the solution of this recent wave of violence. Um, and I think that is particularly clear when we're uh, when we're looking at solutions and we're placing that in perspective with sort of uh, abolitionist calls um, against against police lately. Uh, so most of the perpetrators of 
this recent wave of attacks uh, are private individuals, not official state or organizational actors. Uh, however, abolitionists warn against in response seeking safety uh, from uh, uh, looking for safety from the state uh, or for police um, and thus pitting the AAPI community against calls uh, for abolition. And we've seen that um, historically, you know, for example, in 2017, the death of Yang Song, um, a New York City massage worker who was killed during an NYPD raid, it shows us that we aren't exempt from police brutality. And uh, when we're thinking about solutions, I wanted to ask both Kent and Michael how we can keep our collective response and critique uh, focused on combating the underlying structural racism as opposed to, uh, for example, racist beliefs or actions of individuals. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, <clears throat> I think that's a very difficult uh, situation. I, you know, I, and I've been in, involved with discussions, you know, primarily with local organizations about how to respond. But I think the, um, because I, you know, and I, I would say like in the community, there's been a range of responses, you know, from the more conservative elements, um, you know, particularly um, more well-to-do elements that rely on, you know, law, law enforcement to, I think, the more progressive elements that that you know are looking at structural, structural solutions, but the problem is the structural solutions are uh, long term, and I think that a lot of people are really fearful. I mean, you know, I know of um, of, uh, of a uh, member of CPA, an elderly man who was um, who was uh, went out to go grocery shopping early in the pandemic. He, he was spit upon, and and since that time, he's he's been fearful of coming out of the apartment. So I think there's a lot of fear. So I think that. And I think the problem is, I think for community organizations, their first uh, responsibility is to, is to um, you know, assure the safety of their constituency. And so, so the thing is, long-term solutions aren't, aren't and don't provide a immediate answer to, to what they're facing. And so I think that there needs to be more, and I know people struggle with this, uh, you know, uh, more, more immediate solutions that, that answer some of these things. There have been some ideas, but I don't think none, too many of them are, are very satisfactory. So while I don't uh, disagree with the, the idea, the need to, to you know, change the structure and, and change the culture, uh, we also need other more immediate things. Okay, so um, Kent, do you have anything to say to that? From my perspective, I do think that this is a critical time for the uh, Asian Pacific American community. And there are tremendous organizing opportunities. Um, the uh, Asian Pacific American community has a higher concentration of immigrants than even the Latino community in this country. Uh, there are 22 million Asian and uh, Americans and Pacific Islanders uh, we are the fastest growing ethnic community in the country. And the reason why we even exist as a community is based on the um, civil rights movement of the 1960s that struck down racially discriminatory immigration policies uh, that resulted in a massive influx of uh, Asian Pacific Americans. And so uh, that was not too long ago, back in uh, uh, 
1965, when uh, the racist immigration laws were challenged uh, and uh, we saw a massive influx of um, Asian immigrants. And so I do think that uh, this is a time of tremendous opportunity for education, for uh, organizing and for mobilizing. And I do think in particular, uh, there is a, a tremendous upsurge in activity among uh, Asian American young people and activists that I find very encouraging. I do see that um, uh, so many of our students at UCLA, so many of the students that we work with in the Asian Pacific American uh, Labor Alliance and, and young activists understand uh, the deep relationships between uh, structural inequality and racism and uh, oppression and uh, see the role of uh, the Asian Pacific community in a much broader context of uh, fighting for um, uh, liberation and justice. And so I think that uh, this is a, a moment that we really need to um, critically uh, advance um, mass movements and organizing and uh, creating conditions for broader uh, movements for social justice and social change. All right, great. That's, um, that sounds very promising. Um, and so I, I just have uh, one more question. Um, and it's actually a little bit of a personal question. Uh, so um, one of the issues I've been grappling with throughout the pandemic uh, has been the relative invisibility of anti-Asian racism in the US. And in the early months of the pandemic and large scale quarantine measures, I kept seeing news reports of attacks on Asian people scattered here and there and grew increasingly alarmed by the steady uptick of stories, firsthand accounts and graphic videos of, of physical assaults. And yet I, uh, I struggled with this weird sense of unreality, like wondering if the incidents amounted to more than just coincidence. And, um, and even sometimes felt ashamed of speaking up about anti-Asian racism, especially in light of the model minority stereotype. Um, and I know that I'm not alone in this kind of shame and reluctance to speak about Asian Americans' place in the US racial hierarchy um, and have seen the national statistics about Asian Americans' high median income compared to their racial groups. So I'm wondering if, you can address some of the issues around the invisibility of anti-Asian racism, and if you might provide any guidance for activists and allies. Michael or Kent? I was going to punt it to Kent. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to uh, start, and then I would, you know, invite uh, Michael and Alice to add. Um, I do think that uh, uh, this is a time when we need to lift up the voices of Asian Pacific Americans and we need to uh, validate and we need to support and we need to um, provide context for what is going on. It is heavy that there is such deep fear within the Asian Pacific American community. It is heavy when our elderly are being singled out for attack. You know, and uh, uh, it's painful. It, it is uh, indeed a, a moment of reckoning 
for not only the Asian Pacific American community, but for our society at large. How could it be that um, the uh, white racist president who lied to the American people about the pandemic, who lied to the American people about the results of the 2020 election and continued to lie to this day, how could it be that he received 74 million votes? And um, I directly attribute part of the spike in anti-Asian violence to this continued narrative that China and that Asian Americans are to blame for the uh, coronavirus. And uh, uh, this was parroted by the right-wing media. This was parroted by members of the administration, members of the Republican Party. We have a national Republican Party that is embracing white supremacy uh, and um, uh, horrendous uh, policies that are um, calling for intense exploitation and abuse of communities of color throughout this country uh, that is nakedly uh, embracing the lie of the Trump administration that um, the uh, 2020 election was stolen. Uh, and uh, so this is the context that we have to deal with. We have to lift up the voices. We have to affirm what is really happening and that yes, there is a lot of shame. There's a denial. There's a sense that how could this be happening? How could members of our community be afraid to leave their apartments, be afraid to leave their homes because of what might happen to them. And yet that is exactly what's happening. And we need to seize upon this moment to uh, validate that uh, concern, to validate those fears and to organize and to put it in a broader context that you know, this is not an isolated incident of one uh, problem of, of racial injustice and racial hatred. This is embedded in US history. This is embedded in the genocide of Native Americans and the enslavement of African Americans. This is embedded in a white racist culture that to this day has never come clean on the legacy of slavery and the legacy of genocide facing Native Americans. So how could we expect that um, Asians would be treated any differently? So I do think that, uh, that this is an opportunity for us to educate, to organize, and to mobilize our communities like never before. Yeah. All right, great. Oh, so, sorry, Michael, go ahead. Yeah, I just gonna add that, um, yeah, I think, the, I think the invisibility of Asian Americans historically, I think is, you know, is I kind of relate to the point I was kind of uh, trying to raise earlier about its, its integration with, you know, the US, history of imperialism. I think that, um, you know, that when the, you know, Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, right, the, it's not simply that Chinese were allowed to immigrate, it was that they were also could never become citizens, that they were permanent aliens in this country, so that they were never seen as part of the United States. And so that nor were all of the, um, you know, the subsequent uh, other Asian ethnicities uh, that came afterwards because it was like everything is tied up with how, what is the US relationship with these countries overseas? Uh, so I think that, but I, so I think that the, this, and I think for the, for the US to face up to, uh, you know, racism against Asians, it has to face up to its, 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 its role in the world today. And I think that's very difficult.
but but let me just say that you know in terms of being a you know, I agree with Kent that the thing is to organize. I would just say locally where I am, I think, you know, Kent maybe has a more national picture, but that in the Boston area, I feel that um, the organizing in Boston, that one of what the most active, if not one of the most active and not the most active neighborhood in, is perceived in Boston to be Chinatown. And that's become the history of organizing over the decades. Uh, and it's partly, you know, the reason why I wrote the book. And I think that that's brought, you know, Asians to more prominence in the city, um, you know, in certain spheres. So, so I think in order to be noticed, not to be invisible, you know, we have to, we do have to organize. And I, and I, 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 I again agree with Kent that I'm also inspired by young people I think in the same way, you know, because I'm, I'm, I think also Ken is a child of the 60s and 70s when we say, you know, we want to be equal like everybody else. I think young people today, young Asians, they said, you know, you can't, you know, you can't treat us like this. You can't, you know, invisibilize us. You, you know, we, you know, so I think that that's really been inspiring to watch and I hope to continue. It's hard work though. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for both of your comments on that. And, um, and I definitely think that um, you gave really good guidance for, um, for how to not become invisible, right, how to get out out of that invisibility through, um, through organizing and, um, and building and especially with, uh, with young people. So, um, so Can I just you. interject with a couple of models in Boston, which I am so sure. inspired by? Jessica Tang is the first woman of color to ever lead the Boston Teachers Union. This is amazing, you know, to have a uh, young Asian woman be the president of one of the largest unions in the city of Boston is historic. And she is building a dynamic, progressive, organizing union in Boston. Darlene Lombos is a woman of color, the first to lead the Boston Central Labor Council and is doing extraordinary work to forge labor and community alliances and to shake up the labor movement so it truly embraces immigrant workers, workers of color, women workers, young workers. And we now have a woman of color leading the Boston Labor Council. So I think that uh, change is happening. And uh, everywhere we go, we see a new generation of leaders and activists who are standing up within the Asian Pacific Islander community. And uh, this is the time when we need to make sure that their voices are heard and that uh, the message that they are uh, emanating resonates and mobilizes our community. Thank you for that, Kent. Um, let's, Alice, do you have the next question ready? Yeah, um, thank you for your answer so far. I, uh, for this next question, I, I do want to kind of dig in on um, both of you have touched on the ways in which our the AAPI community has already responded and sort of stepped up to this moment. Uh, and so, and so I, I, I kind of want to ask about um, the concrete ways that uh, Kent and Michael, your respective communities and cities um, and coalitions uh, are responding. Um, Michael, you talked about uh, community organizations really prioritizing sort of safety um, in, this, in this moment in the present. Um, so sort of, yeah, what are, what are responses and resistances um, and 
uh, in what ways are you seeing people being galvanized to build power and solidarity? And in particular, um, as, as a young person, uh, a young organizer, and whose parents have very different political beliefs from mine, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on how we can really build uh, a truly intergenerational movement in which you know, young people are protecting and learning from our elders and um, uh, you know, at the same time, young people are really uh, providing, um, Kent, like you said, that sort of inspiration and um, energy uh, and, and new ways of organizing and movement building. Um, so yeah, uh, Kent, I don't know if you wanna start just cause it's a nice follow-up. I do really wanna highlight what is happening uh, within progressive sectors of the US labor movement. And uh, the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance has our uh, national convention. It'll be online so everybody can join us. Uh, this August. Uh, but here in California, where we have the largest concentration of uh, Asian American workers in the country here in Los Angeles County, where we have the largest concentration of uh, Asian American workers uh, within a city or a county, I see tremendous organizing that's taking place. And, um, uh, you know, the home care uh, union here in uh, California is led by women of color. It was, it was a campaign that was launched by Black women uh, and 74,000, uh, mainly women of color, organized the union here in Los Angeles County. Now, more than 300,000 home care workers are under union contract in the state of California. And the union meetings are dynamic. They're held in, in Chinese, in Korean, in Armenian, in Spanish. Um, it's it's uh, one of the most diverse um, memberships of any union uh, in the country. We see organizing happen happening like we, we've never seen in recent years. I mean, this wave of teacher strikes a couple of years ago, um, you know, uh, tens of thousands of teachers took to the streets in Los Angeles and shook up the city, not only to demand better wages and working conditions for teachers, but more importantly, to demand quality public education. And uh, they were supported uh, by millions of people here in Los Angeles and California because people saw the power of teachers organizing and standing together. We see this new generation of young workers, including fast food workers, Uber and Lyft drivers, warehouse workers who are getting tired of, of uh, entering the workforce for low wage jobs with no future while you have the wealthiest corporations making billions during the pandemic. So uh, what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture when you have uh, um, corporate leaders who are making more money off the pandemic, you know, parasites, and yet the workers who are creating the wealth for those corporations are being paid poverty wages with no uh, benefits. So I think that there is a lot of organizing taking place, especially among immigrant workers and workers of color and women workers and young workers. So this is going to lead, in my view, to the revitalization of the US labor movement. All right, great. Thanks for that, Kent. And um, Michael, do you have anything to say to that? Well, I, I guess I, I don't have quite as um, um, optimistic uh, a assessment of the situation, I guess. Um, you know, I recently went to a rally against uh, racist violence against Asians. And then later on, I found the same day that there was three other rallies on this, you know, against violence against Asians 
in the city that same day. And, you know, maybe it's the result of social media where everybody feels like it's put out thing on Facebook and then, you know, you can organize your own rally instead of people trying to build a coalition. But I, I, I see like there's been a range of responses that um, different people have. And I think that because of a lot of organizing that um, that's gone on in the past that, you know, there's been things like policy responses, um, like a lot of, you know, I think organizations, national networks have put out policy papers, suggestions for what to do, um, as well as, you know, as you, you know, a way of the hate crime bill that was that was just signed by by Biden. And there's also a similar bill in, you know, Massachusetts State House. And I think there's questions about those bills because, you know, it basically, you know, kind of builds up the law enforcement thing. But the positive thing about it is, is, is that it tracks hate crimes with more precision. Um, but I, I would say locally, like, so there's been organizations and local coalitions that have been focused on, you know, these policy recommendations, as I mentioned, somewhat addressing structural issues. Um, and I think that um, uh, local, so, you know, I, I think you, you all probably aware that, you know, also in local communities, people have been trying to organize things like more like self-help, self-defense type of things like community patrols or, uh, you know, the largest social service organization in New York City distributed um, alarms for the elderly to carry around with them. Um, here I've been working with people about trying to do bystander, uh, you know, intervention training, um, you know, to, to de-escalate things. I know locally in the Vietnamese community that they're, te they're teaching self-defense to uh, the seniors. And uh, they're also doing de-escalation training in the nail salons. Uh, so, I, so I think there's all these scared efforts and there's like um, not, a, I wish there was a more unified response, but I feel like we don't, we don't not just Asians, but I think we in the, the left don't quite have the infrastructure and the organization that we need to have a better response to these type of issues as well as issues like you know Black Lives Matter and 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 to to be more directed and more effective. So, um, so but, but but I think things are getting a little bit sharper and things are getting better and people are converging on on um, some ideas. But right now it's not real good. <laughs> sorry, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry, sorry. Oh, Linda, if I can just respond real quick. Um, I mean, it's really interesting to hear that perspective, Michael, especially because um, being in Houston, I kind of, um, you know, I, I think it's also been somewhat of a scattered response. It certainly hasn't been unified. And I was wondering if it was just because the Houston, especially um, sort of, AAPI organizing in Houston is, is much more nascent compared to New York or California. Um, but uh, it's interesting that, yeah, based, being based in the Northeast, you've also sort of had that perspective. And you go ahead, Linda. Yeah, well, I think it's rooted in, well, you probably know, like just, you know, there's been a big split, I mean, uh, in the, um, Chinese, I don't know to what extent, it's also true for other Asian ethnic, ethnicities, but, you know, cause there's a sector like 
particularly associated with Falun Gong that, that have supported Trump, right? And so there's a sector that, that does that. And, and of course, their response to these things are more like, you know, yeah, let's, let's get more police. So I think it's a, you know, it's a very, um, yeah, I think there's, there's things we have to deal with uh, uh, in, in the Chinese and Asian communities. Um, Yeah, um, that's that's really interesting, Michael. Because um, my my next question was actually going to be about the question of uh, of unity um, and also uh, disunity when it comes to Asians and Asian Americans, and um, and so and so um, I've been seeing the term Asian American in a number of venues responding to the attacks of the past year, including uh, news media and solidarity statements issued by various groups and institutions. And many of these venues use Asian American to point to the shared vulnerability of Asian people in the US to racism, despite the fact that people of Asian descent in the US are heterogeneous classes, ethnicities, nationalities, as well as immigrant documentation and generational statuses. As the recent New York Times article put it, the past year's violence has known no boundaries spanning generations, income brackets and regions. So how do you understand this appeal to some kind of unified Asian American identity? Do you think this identity category is monolithic and obscures differences that really matter and have an impact in people's lives? Or do you see it in more pr productive terms? So uh, Kent or Michael? There is indeed tremendous diversity within the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. Uh, dozens of nationalities, dozens of languages, uh, as you indicated, socioeconomic, educational background, all over the map. Uh, on the one hand, Asian Americans, uh, as you indicated earlier, have uh, relatively high um, family income. Um, again, some of this is skewed because uh, Asians tend to uh, live in uh, multi-generational units more than uh, non-Asians, tend to be more geographically concentrated in major cities where uh, cost of living and income are higher than rural areas. So, uh, you know, it, it's very challenging to paint these broad pictures of uh, what is the Asian American community without uh, delving more deeply into um, a uh, disaggregation of that information. So I do see that, um, uh, yes, it's it's challenging, you know, when you, when you talk about uh, uh, the Asian American community because it is not one community. And when you deal with um, uh, large numbers of immigrants, uh, they would ask, well, why are you, you know, uh, bracketing me with, with, you know, that other group over there? We don't have anything in common with them. Uh, the reality, however, is that, as you said, during this time of heightened attacks, heightened anti-Asian violence, um, it doesn't really matter you know, what country you're from, it doesn't matter uh, how many generations you may have been here in this country, uh, you are potentially open for uh, attack. And, um, uh, you know, I do think that this is a teaching 
and a learning opportunity uh, for the Asian American community at large to have a much deeper understanding of our collective history. And um, you know, the, the Chinese Exclusion Act, although it was passed in 1882, it applied to Asians across the board. And it, it existed on the books of this country for more than 80 years. So um, uh, we, ha we have to understand the nature of white supremacy and the nature of institutional racism that it impacts all API subgroups. So I do think that um, uh, part of the education to members of our extended community is to understand there are in fact um, shared aspects of our collective history and a definite benefit for uh, the Asian and uh, American and Pacific Islander community uh, to stand together and to organize together and to fight together. Yeah, I, I think generally the, you know, the Asian American term is, um, you know, papers over differences. And, you know, here in Massachusetts, we had a multi-year fight over uh, this aggregation of data, you know, um, concerning Asians, um, which has not come to a conclusion yet. Um, but I think as far as this issue, I don't, it's not as, you know, Ken ind indicated, I, I don't think it's, it's that, 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 that big a deal. I, I, because I think that, you know, people, this, this show, yeah, pe you know, people who are Filipino, Vietnamese, you know, Thai have been, you know, killed or slashed or with box cutters because, you know, and and told to go back to China. So, you know, as well as a lot of, you know, Chinese. So, um, yeah, on this issue, I think, in a sense, society does force us into the the box of Asian American. So, um, yeah, I, I so I guess on this issue, I'm I, I'm not as worried about it. Though generally, I think you know, it is a problem because you know, there's there's a lot of, of diversity. Uh, in our communities. Um, I want to ask about a uh, somewhat of a different form of, of this aggregation, um, and that is the, the differences in geography within the AAPI community. Um, uh, so, you know, Boston, where Michael, your recent book is uh, based versus Los Angeles, where Kent is based versus Houston, uh, where I am currently. Um, uh, obviously have very different contexts and histories and um, maybe sort of flashpoints that uh, local communities could organize around. And so I kind of want to ask about um, your opinions about, and not that of course it's an either or, but maybe just the uh, uh, pros and cons and how they interrelate of uh, local organizing so local direct action and mutual aid um, versus uh, uh, more of a national movement and coalition building um, and how maybe both of these strategies can, can interplay in, in terms of, uh, Michael, you're saying, finding somewhat more of a cohesive uh, uh, strategy of response. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I guess we had to try to do both, but I think that the problem is, I think, I mean, if we do something nationally, it would just be among, like, uh, I think the 
you know, the leadership, you know, and I think but to, to, to really, I think, build a base, I think you really have to, you know, uh, work locally. And so I think, I, and I think one problem I see, I mean, again, this is local though, and it's not particular to the, to the Asian communities, but I actually see, you know, you know, cause we work with, you know, Latinx and, and, and African-American groups and, but I, I see since, since I was active that there are fewer base building groups that, that are active today, you know, I mean, there are different, you know, in, in those communities. And, and I think that we need more of those things. So I would, I guess I would put the emphasis on local, but I, you know, obviously the national networks and the, uh, you know, play, play a very important role. Uh, so I, I think we'd have to try to do both. If I could just draw briefly on our experience um, with the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance, I do think that there is tremendous benefit in um, building local power in uh, uh, working to transform um, unions to embrace a progressive vision for the future and to concentrate resources on organizing the un unorganized and in building uh, labor community alliances around a common agenda. So I see a tremendous benefit at a local level in um, building a progressive dynamic democratic unions. At the same time, I see tremendous benefit in linking those organizing efforts uh, both uh, sectorally. So uh, there's been a huge increase in organizing of Asian American workers in the healthcare sector throughout the country, in the uh, home care sector uh, throughout the country, in the public sector, in the field of education. And so um, uh, in, in targeted sectors and in targeted parts of the uh, workforce, we have seen a huge growth in um, the number of Asian American union members, which is um, very encouraging. And uh, if we can share successful models and to influence uh, the local political scene, we can also begin to shape and influence the regional and the national political scene. So I do think that um, you know, the fact that labor played such a prominent role in uh, uh, you know, uh, defeating Trump in uh, November, 2020, in uh, securing a, a, a razor thin majority in the Senate uh, but this was a coalition between uh, labor and communities of color that uh, succeeded in uh, changing the national political agenda. So the only reason today that we're having conversations about uh, the stimulus package, we're having conversations about um, uh, immigration reform, we're having conversations about uh, racial justice, uh, it is because of the change in the uh, political environment nationally. So I do think that we need to look at how we can link our organizing at a local level with a regional and national level as well. All right, um, great. Thanks for that, Michael and Kent. Um, so I have, uh, I have just another question um, about the uh, category of Asian American. Um, so there are uh, some similarities and differences between the 1960s 
social movement roots of the term Asian American and the ways in which the term is being used today. Uh, for instance, the Asian American movement sought to build coalitions between Asians of various ethnicities and nationalities around shared experiences of oppression and discrimination. And so we might say that something similar is going on today in response to rising anti-Asian hate incidents, but I'm not so sure that we can trace a straightforward lineage between contemporary Asian American organizing and that of the 60s and 70s. And I'm wondering uh, if you think there are any significant similarities and differences between then and now. Uh, Michael. Yes, well, obviously, uh, you know, the population is, you know, much more diverse. Um, I mean, not just in terms of uh, Asian ethnicities, but also in, ter in terms of class. I mean, it is true, like in, in the 60s, and uh, when I first thought, became active, it, it actually built upon the, the you know, at that time, I think about 70% of the uh, uh, working population in the Asian, in the Chinese, Japanese, and Filipino, which were the major groups, uh, were in laboring or service occupations. So since the, you know, the effects of the 65 um, Immigration Reform Act, you know, Along with family reunification, it it uh, privileged uh, you know skilled and professional and managerial sectors. So you had a large large influx of, of, of those people, as well as you know the fact that some of the children of the of the working class you know went on to college. So that right now you do have um, you do have a, a large uh, well off. Uh, you know, sector in, in, you know, uh, in the suburbs and so on. And, uh, but I just, and so that, that, that's, and that's really, you know, affected, you know, what the statistic people are talking about this median income thing. But, you know, if you look at Boston, it's, I mean, I think it's true nationally that it's, it's very bipolar because at the same time that, you know, Asians have a high mean income in the state, the, Asians have the lowest median income in the city of Boston. So, you know, so the, so this sector still exists, but, um, you know, probably is a, a small percentage. So therefore it makes it much more difficult uh, to organize. Uh, but, you know, I don't know, we're, we're I, another big difference is, I would say is that right now that People, young activists are, are, are working with the the I guess the fruits of of what happened in the 60s and, and so that there's this nonprofit industrial complex but at the time that I was active right and began to be active there was no service organizations in Chinatown there was there was no community groups hardly except for the traditional ones the family associations and so on and so and and so that those organizations are both, I would say primarily a strength, but it's also a hindrance um, to organizing today. So yeah, I think there are significant differences. I guess like the main, um, the main um, 
similarity I see is uh, the vitality of youth. I would agree with my, what Michael raised uh, about the complexity of the uh, uh, Asian Pacific American community, the diversity, the, uh, the broad spectrum in terms of uh, socioeconomic uh, status, um, and the large numbers of uh, professional workers within the uh, Asian American community and the large percentage of um, entrepreneurs and business people. Uh, and at the same time, you have some of the highest concentrations of poverty among other um, Asian subgroups and other Asians concentrated in certain occupations. So um, there is that bipolar nature to the um, broader Asian American community. Uh, getting back to Linda's question in terms of, uh, you know, the genesis of the term Asian American was a political construct. It was a, uh, a way of organizing uh, the pan-Asian community in solidarity with uh, the uh, rising uh, black consciousness within this country, the, the rising uh, Chicano movement in this country, and to identify with um, communities of color who are struggling for justice. And so I do think that um, uh, in that sense, there are certain parallels between this new upsurge of young activists within the Asian American community who have a much stronger intersectional approach and understand that what is impacting the Asian American community has direct impact on Black Lives Matter, has a direct impact on uh, the fight for immigrant rights, uh, uh, the fight for um, uh, against the Muslim ban. So there is an understanding of the broader forces within our society that perpetuate white supremacy. So I do think that in that sense, there is a renewed um, activism within young people that are looking at a much broader uh, set of conditions and a broader context uh, than in the past. All right, great. Um, thank you so much uh, for your responses to that. And I am just looking at the time here. We are five minutes to eight, but I think we can we can get one more full question in before we turn to uh, the audience for Q&A. Okay, so okay, so actually, this next question is for my co-host Alice. So uh, Alice is currently a co-director of West Street Recovery, a horizontally organized grassroots group using rebuild and recovery efforts after disaster to build community power. And she's also done uh, lots of other social organizing, labor union and climate justice work in Houston. And much of her work has been with black and Latinx people. So Alex, I'm wondering if you can tell us about your experience organizing in spaces where there are not that many Asians and Asian Americans. And uh, do you identify with any of the terms we've been using so far in the show, Asian, Asian American, a Pacific Islander, or person of Asian descent? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I, think I predominantly identify as, as Chinese American, um, but uh, uh, also Asian American um, to a somewhat lesser extent, um, just because 
most of my uh, sort of connection with my identity is through my family directly, um, as opposed to uh, like, like you said, um, sort of organizing in this broader context. Um, and I think this is an interesting question because uh, uh, as, you know, since I've been an organizer and I first sort of started off in the climate movement uh, when I was in high school um, uh, and then moving on to sort of engaging in issues um, that the broader left is concerned with um, in college. And I think there was a disconnect um, and I was in, engaging in this sort of um, uh, setting aside of my own personal identity um, and sort of engaging as a young person generally uh, or as a leftist generally. Um, and um, the climate movement has come a long way uh, just in the past six or seven years. But when I first joined, it was uh, it was it was a very white space, um, and now, uh, like you said, at West Street Recovery, we uh, we work predominantly in a community in um, in Northeast Houston, uh, where there's three percent white people and um, about sixty to seven percent uh, uh, black people. Um, and I think I think this is a, a question that I'm absolutely still thinking about and still working through, but I feel like I'm. Um, especially recently, I'm starting with, um, and this has been sort of repeated again and again throughout this conversation, but the, the broader context and the uh, coalitions and being a part of, um, you know, not just, I think like you kind of have to pull out specific parts of what it means to be uh, a part of the AAPI community. Um, for example, when, when you think about being immigrants, right, like what are, uh, then there's, a very direct connection between what our uh, Latinx brothers and sisters are going through right now, being deported, um, being locked up. Uh, there's a direct connection to the Muslim ban. Um, and when you think about the legacies of imperialism that so many of our, our home countries have faced, uh, then there's a direct connection to, for example, Palestinian liberation currently. And so I, I do think it comes from looking at uh, history and looking at um, present day coalitions as well. Um, and uh, uh, like I said, I think on a more personal level, there is there is still a, a very big disconnect just with uh, the differences of political beliefs between uh, me and my parents. And that's still, that is an open question that I'm still thinking about. Okay, yeah, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um... Um, letting us in on, on some of your personal experiences organizing in these spaces and um, and also kind of telling us a little bit about your your family right and how um, and how right you uh, you have to set aside some of your past or you know your your uh, your identification right with your family um, so so um, thanks. Thanks for letting us know more about your organizing experience. And I think now we should we move on to Q&A or, um, okay, let's move on to Q&A. So, um, so if you have any questions, um, please post them in the chat box or you can uh, direct message me or raise your hand. 
and I will try to call on you based on the order um, that they were submitted. Okay. So, uh, Victor. Victor, I think you're muted. Thank you for this interesting and important discussion. Uh, I'd like to introduce a dimension uh, that hasn't been uh, touched on yet. And, and that is the uh, geopolitical dimension, the US government's rivalry with China and its constant attempts to uh, demonize China in, in more and more ways. Um, and I, I wanted especially to uh, recommend sources like the gray zone, uh, individual travelers to China, like one I came across uh, named Daniel Dumbrill, whom I had not heard of before, a Canadian who's lived in China for 12 years and who's uh, visited Xinjiang and made a lot of uh, sort of direct contacts. The uh, demystification uh, of, of China, the direct contact people to people is so important. And, and I mean, historically in this country, uh, the anti-Chinese and the anti-communist uh, dimensions have merged and been very dangerous. And part of deconstructing or uh, uh, undoing the anti-Chinese uh, pressure is challenging the, uh, the US government's hostility uh, towards the Chinese regime. And I mean, we can have a, a completely open-minded uh, approach to, uh, to the Chinese system. Uh, there are some interesting debates, for example, that are expressed actually in a reader that I just received from one of our uh, audience members here, Duncan McFarland, who's done a, a nice China reader, which uh, can be very useful. But there, there are many sources and there are many different points of view. But I think what's in common, and I think generally recognized, including by commentators who are not particularly radical in this country, is uh, including in a Harvard study a few years ago, that the general level of contentment in the population of China is greater than that in the United States. And uh, that surprises some people, but it says something about the, about the Chinese government, which is worth knowing. And so I, th I think in combating the anti-Asian racism, uh, challenging uh, the negative stereotypes about China uh, and talking about the direct experience of the people there as Daniel Dumbrill has done is very important. So I just like, I wanted to throw that out as a comment and I'm interested in the responses of, of our guests. Thank you, Victor, for that comment. Um, I've actually uh, done a lot of work in trying to build labor solidarity between uh, US unions and Chinese unions over the past 20 years. And the very issues that you have raised are a reflection of the Cold War framework, the anti-communism and the anti-China bias that is so deeply ingrained within the US government, both Democrats and Republicans. Uh, so it was absolutely off the charts during uh, the Trump years when uh, he blamed China for the uh, COVID-19 uh, crisis and uh, did everything he could to inflame uh, hostile racist um, uh, images of China and uh, the language that he used was very, um, uh, blatantly racist. And so, uh, you know, we see that extreme. However, we see, uh, you know, democratic administrations as well who have embraced 
this uh, very hostile Cold War perspective with regard to China. And we see how this has a direct negative consequence with regard to um, perceptions of the Chinese American and the Asian American community. So I do think that um, when we talk about this broader issue of anti-Asian sentiment and anti-Asian violence, um, as Michael said earlier, it's directly linked to US policy in the Vietnam War, US policy in the Cold War against China, uh, the uh, Korean War, the uh, World War II, when, when uh, 120,000 Japanese Americans were um, forcibly removed from their homes and sent to concentration camps uh, when no similar uh, mass evacuation took place within the German and Italian American communities. So I do think that uh, the, uh, the uh, emerging um, conflicts and the worsening of uh, relationships between uh, US and China uh, not only are very uh, short-sighted and stand in opposition to the interests of uh, workers in this country, uh, but it also has a, a particular negative ramifications with regard to the Chinese and Asian American community. Thank you. Yes, I, right. I, yes. I Michael, to, please go. I completely agree with uh, what Ken just said. And, and um, I just want to note that actually, yeah, it, I mean, how Chinese Americans are treated, I think, is, is really related to I mean, what's the relationship between China and the US. And, you know, you know after the, the communist victory in 1949, you know, there was, there was a hunt on in the Chinatowns. Uh, and I distinctly remember signs going up on the community bulletin boards telling people to report to the FBI if they see any people, um, you know, expressing any sentiments uh, 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 toward China, which is why there was, you know, for, 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 for decades, there was, no, there was no contact at all between the US and China. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Michael and um, Kent. I think uh, we are going to move on to Joseph Nevins, who has a question. Joseph? Yeah, I was having trouble unmuting myself. Oh, okay. sorry, sorry about the delay. Thank you. And thank you to our guests uh, for a really stimulating conversation. Um, before I ask my question, I just want to piggyback on um, Victor's observation. I, I was watching uh, part of the debate yesterday in the House of Representatives regarding the establishment of the January 6th uh, investigation, you know, investigation body. And I can't remember which Democrat it was, but one of the Democrats got up and made this very stirring, uh, energized speech, slamming the vast majority of Republicans for not supporting um, you know, this, this body. And one of his reasons for establishing the body, he said, was because it would be an important, without the United States investigating this properly, it would undermine US ability to challenge China. Right? So there it is right in the heart of the Democratic Party, this constant saber rattling, uh, you know, chauvinism. Um, it's really sickening. We know this, but we really have to go after the democratic establishment on this and how they're feeding this. All right, so that's how, now my question. And it's part, partly um, in, you know, inspired by something Alice asked 
uh, regarding geography. And I'm wondering, like, in thinking about the, you know, if we could map the, 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 the the wave of anti-Asian violence that's unfolded in, you know, over the last year or so. Do we see any significant variation? So, you know, Kent and, and Michael, you both spoke very powerfully about how, you know, uh, assorted national history and imperial history has played into this, right? Uh, this is sort of the fertile soil out of which it grows. I'm wondering, do, does, does locality matter at all? Like in, in thinking about where it's been most intense or, you know, less, important or you know it's manifested itself less so like you know does los angeles the specifics of los angeles or houston or boston help us understand what's going on um in, in the in, you know in terms of the the broad picture and the, the local picture so thank you for that question joseph the unfortunate reality is that anti-asian violence and anti-asian um crimes have uh, increased throughout the country. And in areas that you know, we may not have expected it to occur. Uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, you know, horrendous instances of anti-Asian violence in one of the oldest and uh, most established uh, Chinese American and Asian American uh, communities in the country. Uh, New York, uh, in spite of the long rich tradition of Chinese and Asian Americans, uh, horrendous uh, reports of um, anti-Asian violence. And, you know, of course, the killing of six Asian American women in Atlanta in March of this year. So um, it is a national phenomenon. It is uh, uh, in areas where Asian Americans have been uh, part of the landscape for generations. But I do think it uh, addresses this earlier point that has been raised about how uh, Asians have historically been viewed as others, as aliens, as uh, inherently un-American. And even though I am um, a third generation Chinese American, even though my family came to this country over a hundred years ago, I, I can't tell you how many times um, people tell me to go back to where I came from. I can't tell you how many times people, uh, uh, you know, question my citizenship, question my status. Um, I've done a lot of work with undocumented students over the years and the level of vitriolic racist hate that fills my uh, emails <laughs> is staggering. And, and people saying that I should be deported along with my students. I said, well, that's interesting. You know, I, I think that it would be helpful for some of you to read the US Constitution. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, it is so easy to, uh, you know, look at an Asian face and make an assessment and a determination that, you know, we are not American. Yeah, my understanding, I mean, I really haven't studied this in, in great depth, but my understanding is that the worst, most, the worst concentration of incidents is in New York and California. And I think it may be related to the concentration of, um, you know, Asians in those localities. I think, you know, usually I think when um, people of color are in communities, if there's only a field, then it's not seen as a threat. But I think with these larger numbers then, and people are concerned about changes, um, to the status quo to, to accommodate them, uh, then I think they're perceived as a greater threat. Uh, 
So, but I think someone should, yeah, take a look at that <laughs> in more detail. Okay. Um, so actually there are, uh, there are reports that have been put out that look at this very thing in detail. Um, actually the Stop AAPI Hate um, Coalition, National Coalition that I, I mentioned earlier um, has been gathering reports from all over the nation. And they also um, sort of tabulate which, which states have the most and which cities have the most um, and they rank them. So um, somebody could put that in the chat box, that would be great. All right. Okay, so I think we have um, Tim Sheard who uh, actually wanted me to ask a question for him. Okay. So um, Tim's question is, do you feel that the trafficking of young Asian women for placement in abusive domestic service positions, massage parlors or brothels is also an aspect of anti-Asian violence and should it be part of the overall mobilization for human rights? Thank you for that question, Tim. And I'm really glad you lifted up this aspect because a really critical part of anti-Asian hate and anti-Asian violence is deeply connected to misogyny and to the um, uh, degradation and belittlement and depiction of um, Asian women in uh, very uh, demeaning and uh, very racist ways. And um, uh, unfortunately, it links again to um, uh, U.S. Uh, imperialism, uh, the uh, you know station, the, the stationing of uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, U.S. troops in Vietnam, in other parts of Asia, uh, have um, uh, directly contributed to um, uh, this view of um, Asian women uh, as exotic as. Uh, uh, you know, uh, as people to be abused and, uh, and exploited uh, sexually. And so I do think that um, uh, this is uh, absolutely a part of the, um, uh, the problems of anti-Asian violence that we are addressing throughout the country. And um, it's a serious concern with regard to uh, sex trafficking, with, with regard to the um, exploitation and abuse of um, uh, Asian immigrants and other um, women uh, who have uh, uh, been exploited uh, for many generations in this country. Okay, Michael, would you like to speak to that? No, I, 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 don't, enough to, I don't know enough to comment. Okay, all right, great. Um, thank you very much, Kent. And uh, Tim, Tim, do you think um, do you think he answered your question? I, I do think so, and I just wanted to give a plug to a firm, which is a, a, a mainly Filipino but also international <clears throat> anti-trafficking, fem, radical feminist, <clears throat> anti-capitalist grassroots organization. Um, you probably know of them on the West Coast. They're active in many of our cities, and it's really important part of the fight for fighting anti-Asian violence is fighting the trafficking and the abuse of Asian women. 
All right, great. So um, Druba has a question. Druba, do you want to unmute yourself? Oh, I was trying to unmute myself. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, to start with, I would like to uh, draw your attention to one fact that whenever Asian American, this term is used, West Asian and South Asians, most of the time they're excluded from that and why that I don't know. And secondly, uh, you know, in the Boston area, we are forming a group called Bail United Against White Supremacy. Bail is Black, Asian, Indigenous, and Latinx. There's a small group. It is primarily educating people and having some united, unifying rallies so that we can basically send the message that white fight against white supremacy is something which unites all of us, this, all four groups. But then again, within Asian community, there are various subgroups. And uh, even within Blacks, there are subgroups. So we are just trying to unite uh, and you know, start a unifying uh, movement based on that. So I was looking for some help from the East Asian uh, descent. Uh, we have uh, many from the other groups on the bail. So that would be very helpful. And I would still want to know, you know, why West Asian and South Asians are usually excluded when referring to Asian Americans. Thank you. Uh, Daruba, thank you very much for your comments uh, tonight. And uh, this is a uh, serious concern within the broader uh, Asian American community where uh, uh, we need to make more efforts. We need to uh, be more uh, intentional in being uh, inclusive. This has been a major issue within the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance. We have uh, taken uh, you know, great steps to try to ensure that uh, our leadership is uh, representative of all um, Asian communities, including South Asian communities. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, with regard to language rights and inclusion of um, various uh, Asian groups that we uh, pay attention to ensuring that uh, we provide you know, um, interpretation and translation in uh, critical um, Asian languages. And that when we um, uh, develop organizing campaigns and when we reach out to uh, various um, uh, communities of color that we'd be very intentional in ensuring that the organizing committee is reflective of the diversity of the workers, that the uh, you know, leadership is reflective of that diversity as well. So it is something that uh, we still need to work on. And I agree that it is a, a problem with regard to uh, a bias towards um, East Asians uh, with uh, regard to the uh, broader Asian American community. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think we, you know, we need to make efforts to be inclusive. I, I think, um, like, I think the Asian American Resource Workshop uh, 
locally has uh, really, you know, incorporated a lot of um, South Asian, I'm not sure about West Asian, South Asian uh, activists. So, and, and I, I think like, um, and also I think locally, um, I think most of the groups I know of that are South Asian are, are focused on domestic violence. Um, so, but if you could forward your information, uh, but you know, I think generally, yeah, I mean, we need to work harder. I mean, the origins of, you know, the Asian American term, as I mentioned, you know, came out of the three largest groups at those times, uh, you know, uh, in, in the 60s. So I think it's been, uh, it's a work in progress to make it more inclusive. All right, um, great, thank you. And uh, we have another question from one of our co-producers, Saran Mudliar. Thank you, Linda. You know, I have a question for Michael and it follows on the last question in some respects, except with the historical focus. In fact, I can think of a uh, few people better than Michael to address the question because it's one he raised in, in his earlier comments. Michael, you mentioned that the left as a whole lacks the infrastructure for addressing the kinds of problems we're talking about today. So in addition to mentioning um, the Asian, I mean, Asian American identity group based groups, you spoke of the left in general. And since you've been involved in building infrastructure as well as uh, 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 theorizing and, and writing about it historically, I'm wondering, given your experience with the um, Rainbow Coalition, for example, was there a time when we did things better on the left um, in terms of the infrastructure to resist? Or um, do you see us having to really reinvent ourselves to develop this kind of infrastructure? Um, I don't think I'm gonna give you a satisfactory answer because, you know, I, I kind of feel like, um, you know, personally, like, you know, I'm retired and I think like the, um, the revolution, I think, um, belongs to the young people. So I just try to provide support to them. But I have to say like, so, but yes, I felt like during uh, certain times, I felt that, that we were stronger. We, I, I, and, and I don't know what, and I, and I know that Alice belongs to a horizontally organized um, organization, whereas I think that in the past we had more, um, maybe hierarchical, but I think very uh, disciplined groups that were, you know, working in concert. So, you know, I'm still active, but, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand how, you know, kind of more like the decentralized um, horizontal organizations work and how they can be effective. And I'm, I particip participate in some, and I'm, I'm still trying to understand how it all works. So, um, but yeah, I, I feel that in the uh, in the past, um, so you know, most of these groups, I think, you know, were Marxist influenced, and um, and I felt that they were able to accomplish accomplish 
more than I, given the, you know, how much effort there was. And I see a lot of effort going on. I just don't see things kind of moving forward as quickly as maybe I would hope. Okay, thank you, Michael. And um, one of our co-producers, Joe Ramsey has a question. I do indeed. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Alice, for hosting. And I got a break from hosting today. It's been, been really enjoying this. Michael and Kent, your comments have been so insightful. I've really just learned a lot and you're helping me make a lot of connections I, I, I didn't make before. I'm very appreciative for this last hour, almost hour and a half. Uh, my question is a little bit, I was going to direct it to Michael, but Michael just got one directly to him. So I'm going to try to give it to both of you. But it's basically, I mean, I, I know, Michael, you just retired from UMass Boston, where, where I also teach, as does our Linda Liu um, in the English and American Studies Department. And we have, in English, we have a course called Experiencing Boston, which is a kind of a experiential learning course that involves reading about the history, the literature, cultural, but also going out to site visits, engaging guest speakers. So my very sharp question, a yes or no question, which you could answer whenever you want, is would you accept an invitation to come and visit our, our class? Because I would really like to bring your expertise into that classroom. You don't have to answer that now, but um, what, I, what I'd like to hear from me, and this is the one that would be a little more open, would be as an educator um, or someone who has worked in an educational institution, and I understand you work in labor education out at UCLA as well, Kent. I mean, what are um, some of the um, I guess misconceptions or if, I mean if you had to boil it down just a couple of major kind of lessons or uh, takeaways from your research or your activism that you think needs to be imparted to kind of the next generation uh, uh, not to say all students are younger they're not at UMass Boston but uh, generally speaking you know uh, an edu institution educating the next generations um, I would wonder, you know, if you distilling from your research, perhaps from your book, which I'm planning to read very, very soon, I haven't had a chance to read to yet. So a chance here to plug your book a bit as well, Michael, if there would be like something that you think people who might be living in Boston, going to school in Boston, undergraduates uh, who might be watching this program later, um, you know, something that, that would surprise them or, or that you think either about the conditions that, that have existed in Chinatown or about the struggles and the stories that you've learned uh, and that you've gathered from your own work. And, and Kent, without knowing your, your, um, your lo institutional location as well, I guess I'd like to ask you as an educator that seems to have at least, as I understand it, unless I'm wrong, at least a few, if not a full foot, then at least, a, a, I don't know, some part of some appendage that's in, in the university. Uh, what do you see as the challenges or opportunities of kind of communicating these uh, struggles in the community into the university space? Obviously, you could do a whole show on that, but if you could give us even a taste of your thinking about that, I would be grateful. And, and Michael, I, I do extend that invitation to you here uh, publicly as well. You, you can go, Ken. So um, I'm actually uh, on the faculty at UCLA and I've been teaching labor studies and ethnic studies for many years. And um, uh, in the last couple years, we have launched the very first labor studies major in the history of UCLA, but also in the history of our nine campus University of California system. And so we're very excited about that because we think that uh, there is a new generation of student activists who are drawn to the field of labor studies because they see tremendous hope in organizing workers, in joining the labor movement, and working with worker centers and in transforming uh, a very um, 
you know, unjust and um, an, uh, inequitable uh, labor scene. Uh, so um, I teach the core course in our labor studies class at UCLA. We have 300 students enrolled. Uh, next month, we're going to be graduating over 100 UCLA labor studies majors and minors uh, in our program. And many of our students go on to do extraordinary work in the labor movement, with worker centers, in politics, in community-based uh, organizations, uh, in policy work, uh, in research. So um, I think that there is hunger among young people these days to uh, engage in an educational environment that um, validates their experience, their interests, and helps to chart a career where they can find um, uh, avenues to do social justice work as, as a career. Uh, and so the concept that we've been introducing here at UCLA at the Labor Center is uh, this school to movement pipeline. How can we make sure that we provide opportunities for college students, for young activists who want to commit their time, energy, and resources to advance social change and social justice? How do we find career paths so that they can do that? And I think it gets to uh, some of the concerns that Michael raised in terms of how do we institutionalize social justice work? How do we build lasting institutions that will promote worker justice, racial justice, and um, build long lasting institutions in our community? The building you see behind me um, is the uh, outreach office of the UCLA Labor Center. Uh, we are walking distance within 20 major unions in Los Angeles. We work deeply with communities of color, immigrant communities, unions and worker centers of Los Angeles. We just got uh, an allocation in the state um, uh, budget that was uh, introduced by the governor last Friday for a $15 million allocation to renovate a permanent home for the UCLA Labor Center and to name our building in honor of Reverend James Lawson Jr., an iconic leader of the civil rights era who worked cl closely with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So, in my view, that's a, uh, a pathway towards building institutions in advancing uh, long-term social justice and in recruiting uh, young people to find career paths in uh, the world of social justice. Yeah, I just uh, want to add like, I, that sounds like a great course you're teaching. I, I think, I don't, I don't, I think that, uh, yeah, one thing that would be important to me is like that is for students to to, to learn about um, you know for you know the people the people in the communities in Boston and the history. You know, unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, uh, except there aren't that many histories that people call in Boston. There's Mel King's Chain of Change about the Black community up to a certain point, and there isn't a book about the Latinx community. But I think that if, if students can learn the, about the struggles and how the city was built and, and what happened, I think that, and, and uh, how these communities survive, I think that they, that they would, uh, if they learned about, um, you know, the Rainbow Coalition, or if they learned about um, the, the fight against the um, Southwest Corridor, you know, um, which, you know, highway that was supposed to encircle the city of Boston. Um, you know, I think that 
they would learn a lot about the structures of power and um, maybe alternative ways of, of, of doing things. So that's the one small thing I, I, I would suggest, but it sounds like your course is kind of doing that already. So not, not, I'm not adding much. <laughs> We're trying, but I actually have not integrated uh, Chinatown in, in a way. I'm very conscious of that as a, as a not an absence, but an inadequacy. I do use, I want to give one more plug, not only plugging your book, The Forever Struggle, but uh, Forever Struggle, but Seren Mudliar and Joseph Nevins, who's also on this call, along oh, yeah. with Eleni McCrackus, co-authored a great book. It just came out what, last year, I guess. It seems like a long time ago because this has been a crazy year, but A People's Guide to, to, to uh, Greater Boston, which I, I just uh, posted the link in the chat. But I would love to have you join them in, in, in as a, you know, even if it's just a Zoom visit to classroom, even if we're back, live, Michael, it would really be great to share your- A little tired of Zoom, so I'll come. <laughs> I'm in person, okay. <laughs> All right, great. Um, thanks, Michael and Kent. And I am, I guess, making a last call for uh, for questions. Um, you can put them either in the chat box or uh, raise your hand here. Or if you are watching on Facebook Live, you can also uh, write your question in there. All right, so um, Michael, Michael Huey? Has a question? My, Michael, do you have a question? My, Michael Hoey? I think you're muted. Okay, listening to Ken. I am sorry about that. I kept trying to unmute myself. It kept oh, saying you're not okay. allowed to unmute. Sorry about okay. that. Oh, wait, somebody, okay, I got the rope. Okay, so, so, so okay, so, so Michael. So when I Google Australia or Canada or Germany, I, I see this anti-Asian violence cropping up all over the planet. And when I've looked at Australian news, I see a man, um, an empire, actually Murdoch, uh, Fox News, Sky News, whatever seemed to promote the idea that the sooner America attacks China and, and you know is able to what do you call secure Taiwan because we're pissed off that we lost control of China back in '49 and all that kind of stuff. This seems to be a uh, yellow journalism thing, like Hearst did a hundred or so years ago to get us into the war with Spain and um, the whole thing with the Philippines and Cuba and all that. So. I'm wondering if there are big players behind the scenes that are orchestrating some of this for geopolitical goals, or is it just kind of a local thing that's popping up all over the place? Well, thank you for that question, Michael. I mean, we are in the midst of a Cold War between the United States and China. And uh, US is doing everything they can to try to encircle China, to try to uh, mobilize its allies in opposition to uh, China. And um, uh, the right-wing global media in particular is uh, promoting uh, the US analysis and the US posture in, um, uh, in securing the, the US domination in the global scene. So, I do think that um, uh, what we see happening with the 
media cycle in this country in promoting a lot of um, anti-China messaging is being picked up by pro-US government and pro-US military forces in other parts of the world. Similarly, what we see with you know, the US back of uh, Israel and the attacks on the Palestinian people, we also see that right-wing uh, message being uh, shared and circulated in um, uh, pro-US and pro-Israel um, media outlets uh, throughout the globe. Okay, um, Michael, do you have anything to say to that? No? No. Okay, all right. All right, I'm sorry. Um, Saran has another question. Oops. I'm double dipping, yeah. I, uh, I I was really intrigued by Kent's uh, statement or formulation of the school to movement pipeline, and I and I know you you probably have very good answers to this, but uh, it's one concern I have is um, uh, with students who uh, join movement organizations coming off um, you know for the summer say uh, from from campuses going into movements in the communities. And I, I worry about uh, a certain kind of elitism developing, you know, where, pe where young people from the, uh, from the colleges see themselves as saving the communities. And uh, I'm certain that, you know, given your history and even like with Michael's example too, that uh, you're very self-conscious about this, this kind of a problem. But could you share with the rest of us how this kind of uh, danger is averted? That's a great question, uh, Surin. And uh, I do think that from our vantage point, the vast majority of the students within our uh, UCLA Labor Studies program are working class students. The vast majority are women. The vast majority are students of color. Uh, the vast majority uh, are first-generation college students. And so why they are drawn to the labor center and why they are drawn to the field of labor studies is that it validates their family's story, it validates their family's experience. Some of the finest students that I've had over the course of my career have been undocumented immigrant students who have had to fight against tremendous barriers and obstacles to even allow them to attend a public university. And um, uh, the undocumented students at UCLA have led the fight nationally for uh, the Federal DREAM Act, for deferred action for childhood arrivals, to stop the deportation of their parents. And so when they take our classes, it resonates in a whole different way, that th these are not abstract things that they study about in the books. These are uh, parts of their um, lived experience. Uh, and so, uh, uh, we really are very uh, uh, proud of the students that um, have gone through our programs, who um, have uh, seen their um, uh, role in, in taking back uh, skills, resources, knowledge to their communities to organize for change. And um, uh, we see them in unions, we see them in uh, worker centers, in community-based organizations, in, um, in government, uh, in politics in uh, 
playing a dynamic role in helping to uh, shape the future. Yes, I actually, I, um, I think that there is, there is a danger of elitism, but I think of all like uh, students who want, who graduate and want to do work. Well, I'm mainly talking from the community perspective, wanted to work in community as an asset. But I think that, so, um, but I think that we have to, and I think that progressive, the progressive teachers that influence them are, are pretty strong in terms of uh, uh, teaching them to center the, the, those most impacted. So I think that uh, a lot of them come out with that, that point of view. Um, but I think that we, we, I've been active in a, another project called Activist Training Institute that works with, with young people. And we've been actually, uh, and that's been around for quite a while, but we've been struggling with this I, the idea about we actually need to work more closely with um, non-English speaking immigrants to actually, um, to actually give them the tools that they need or the understanding of society in order to actually re realize that thing where you can center the mo most impacted. So I think that probably we haven't done a good enough job of that, um, that we have to have more, but it's you know, much harder because uh, of, of the language and, and cultural issues and also the schedules. But I think that's something we have to work harder at. Um, but yeah, I, I, I recognize the problem, but I think there's some mitigating factors, I guess. All right, great. Uh, thank you, Michael. and. Kent. So um, before we end discussion tonight, um, I just like to give uh, all three of our guests, so Michael, Kent, and Alice, uh, a chance to uh, give any closing comments. Um, I, I don't think I have any general closing comments, but I actually do want to hop on Seren's question just now, uh, kind of to provide an alternative perspective. Um, but I think as someone who, as a recent graduate from a, uh, a non-public, so a private university, um, I, I did kind of experience firsthand the way in which uh, the academy actually absorbs activism and social justice and sort of uses it for its own means or to perpetuate its own programs and its own agenda. Um, like at Rice, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of funding and a lot of initiatives um, that sort of put social justice under this uh, label of like civic leadership or social entrepreneurship where um, it becomes, uh, as a student, you have an opportunity to be able to quote, change the world or make a positive impact on the community, but that takes place um, uh, within the framework of like capitalism, like starting a, starting a business that's good for the world or under the framework of like programs that still very much, um, I would say fail to challenge the status quo and, and try to solve these, solve these problems um, uh, in, in other innovative ways. Um, but uh, I would say, yeah, I, I think Saran, that's that's a really good question as someone who's just coming out of uh, of a university that I think where that where that is a danger, and I think most of the 
genuinely progressive. Um, I think like, of course, being in, being in Houston, there's a very different academic infrastructure compared to UCLA uh, and the UCs in general, um, which have a, a, an amazing history of being genuinely progressive. Um, but I think, yeah, most of the, the actual organizing and movement building was definitely happening just purely on a student-led basis um, during the time that I was there. Okay, great. Thanks, Alice. Um, and uh, I, I'd like to imagine that um, you, you came out of Rice um, as, as a very um, a good organizer with deep ties to, to the community and you haven't been sucked into the, um, the nonprofit industrial complex. So, um, so uh, either Kent or Michael, uh, do you have any closing comments that you'd like to make? Uh, I just hope we can work together in the future to build a stronger movement. That's that's all. Yes, definitely. All right. Uh, a shout out to uh, Linda and Alice for facilitating tonight's uh, conversation. And uh, great to see you, Michael. And to uh, thank everybody for joining us. I do think that um, uh, this is Asian Pacific Heritage Month. This is a time when people across the country are uh, looking at what is happening with the uh, Asian American and Pacific Islander communities, are looking at uh, the challenges with regard to anti-Asian violence and anti-Asian hate. And uh, I do think this is a decisive moment for the Asian American community to um, get organized, uh, to lift up our voices, to uh, join with other uh, communities of color and other progressive movements to uh, make the type of uh, radical social change that is desperately needed within our society. Great, Ken, 